If you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. Thank you, Brant, for joining us here on the show. Brant Goldman is a former founder, was a VP of engineering at CSU, is now starting his own early stage venture fund. He's seen the founder journey both from behind his own eyes and also has seen other founders, has worked to build high caliber engineering teams and is here to share some of his insights and some of his thoughts with us here today. Thank you for being with us, Brant. Nigel, thanks for having me on the show. I met uh, Brian at Uber. Um, he was one of my favorite recruiters at Uber. And when he invited me to be on the podcast, I was really excited to get involved. So I think maybe to start, because I do think it's interesting that you've had such a well-rounded run in the engineering leadership realm. How did you kind of handle the hiring process as a founder when you first started? How did that evolve to your time at Uber at CSU? Can you kind of walk me through maybe like your own development and, and kind of the ways you think about it today? Yeah. So my first job out of school was at Facebook, where I was one of the first 200 engineers. Watched that company grow to about 5,000 engineers over four years before I left to start my company. I guess at, at Facebook, I didn't really think too much about the hiring process. I just showed up for interviews when I was invited and I gave my feedback and then showed up to debriefs and gave a you know thumbs up, thumbs down, two thumbs up, two thumbs down. And to be honest, when I started my company, we modeled the interview process there after what I saw at Facebook. It was a pretty well-developed process that worked super well. We learned a lot from it and copied it almost to the T. So there was, was, I think, four or five different interviews. There was one interview on coding, maybe two interviews on coding, one interview on architecture, one interview on sort of background past projects and culture fits, an interview with the manager, and then the debrief. If someone was on the fence, I think one innovation we had is maybe we'll give them a coding puzzle at the end. Or when we had too many candidates, maybe for, we weren't sure we wanted to spend the time interviewing a candidate, sending a coding puzzle up front. But yeah, for the most part, following that Facebook process. The goal was to hire about one engineer a month. So uh, pretty low hiring goals. We ended up hiring a little bit slower than that. I think our bar was super high, possibly even too high. I think I was a perfectionist in many ways and in, in the code mm -hmm. that I wrote, in the architecture that I designed, and in the people that I wanted to hire. I sort of thought people were either good or bad. And I didn't really understand growth mindset too much at the time. Mm. And to clarify, this is you early starting your company. This is like, are you seed stage or series A? Kind of where are you in, in the journey when this is happening? Yeah, this was seed. So I was at Facebook from 2008 to 2012. And this company was in, uh, founded in 2013. Okay. And we raised a seed round, almost $3 million from Y Combinator, uh, Sousa Ventures, Index, and a couple others. So first I was talking about this coding puzzle that we gave. So this will take 48 hours for different candidates. So not 48, four to eight hours for different candidates, depending on their speed. And I uh, thought we got really good signal out of it. That a coding puzzle, we're actually building something. I guess puzzle is probably the wrong word for it, but building something that actually solved. We had a couple. One was like a bug that I had seen at Facebook. Another one was a class that we would want to use at Standard Treasury at my startup. It felt more like what you do day to day, writing code and getting it reviewed than doing things on a whiteboard. So that was a, a pretty fun innovation to have that I don't think I saw before, but I think is pretty common in the industry. I had not become a manager at Facebook. I had to become a manager at my startup. And as a manager, as a first-time manager, I believe people do have strengths and weaknesses, but that even though people can and will grow, 
you want to hire people that are good and not hire people that are not good. Over time, I've learned that actually you should hire people for their strengths mm. and um, you know try to avoid some flags. But if you understand people's strengths and their strengths that maybe others in the team don't have or things that you need for your startup, then you can amplify those strengths and get value out of them and teach others on the team and really help them become the best version of themselves with those strengths. And for the weaknesses, you can coach them on those weaknesses. I've had every weakness in the book as an IC and as a manager. And at this point, have hired and managed hundreds and hundreds of people and thousands of interviews. I've talked about weaknesses, coach people on weaknesses, and you can either help people grow and turn them around, or you can put them in situations where those weaknesses don't really come up, maybe by putting them on a different type of team or pairing them with different types of people. So this may be a mindset shift that I had after the startup. So after I left Standard Treasury, I was thinking about starting another company, but ended up joining Uber. A lot of my former Facebook coworkers that were angel investors in my startup a couple of them actually just ended up at Uber. Mm. And when I was brainstorming new startup ideas with them, they were like, hey, we'll find another startup if you want to do it. But you should really just come to Uber. It's going to be great. It's like Facebook all over again. <laughs> so once again, I was about engineer number 200 and sort of watched it grow to, I don't know, four or 5,000 before I left. So a very similar life cycle as Uber. But the difference was rather than being a new grad out of school, just showing up for interviews and showing up for debriefs as a, a cog in the machine, I really understood how this process worked because I had uh, built it at my company, copying Facebook, but with a couple changes, and then saw the the interview uh, process at Uber and was able to contribute to it and coach people on it while still learning new things. So one new thing I learned at Uber was a, a program launched a couple months after I joined called the Bar Raising Program, which was borrowed from Amazon. I think they invented it, and a bunch of companies out there have it. It's often called the Bar Raising Program. I think, if I remember correctly, Pinterest calls it the Bartending Program. But the idea is, how do you make sure the bar goes up over time? And if you're trying to make it go up and you don't do as great a job, at least it's staying the same. But if you're not even trying to make it go up, it's probably going to go down as the company joins. And the, the way that works is you have someone on the interview panel that's not on the team. They don't have the bias of needing somebody on the team to sort of help solve their own pain. They're really responsible to the company at large, as are people on the team. But there's sort of like a, a bias and a conflict of interest. Yeah. And they're also interviewers that have a lot of experience interviewing and are known for having a high bar and for decisions that correlate with. So I became one of the first bar raisers at Uber. And actually by the end, I was the head bar raiser for ATG, wow. the self-driving division. So it was the division of over a thousand people. So bar raising is great. It's actually something I then brought to my last role uh, at CSU, where I was head of engineering for a Series C AI startup in the data analytics space. So at CSU, I would say that when I joined, it was about uh, 10 engineers. When I left, it was close to 40. So I'm almost quadrupled the engineering team. But the recruiting process there was obviously less structured than what Facebook looked like or when Uber looked like when I joined, because those are bigger companies. Right. And rather than like Standard Treasury, where I started, where I started and just sort of copied the Facebook system, at CSU, I was able to, um, having seen different recruiting processes and how they evolved over time at Uber and then Uber versus ATG and over the the six years I was there having a change, really having perspectives on different approaches to different parts of the hiring process. And there's not just one way to do it. Like I used to think, oh, the Facebook way is the best way. But for each aspect of the recruiting process, all the way from top of funnel and sourcing and referrals, all the way to closing, and then past that to onboarding, which I consider the very last part of the hiring process after they're hired. For each one of these things, we can consider what have I seen at different companies? What have I seen at companies I've invested in? What have I learned talking to other friends that are directors and VPs at various companies of all sizes? And what do I think is the right thing for CSU? So the process there has also evolved a bunch in my year and change there before I left to wow. start my venture firm. Wow, there's a lot in there. One of the things you said that 
I think about a lot is the are you looking at candidates to qualify them or to disqualify them and talking about like, do you hire someone for their strengths or disqualify them for the weaknesses, say? And we run into this a lot and it is like a, a very different mindset. And then the other question I have is obviously being the top bar raiser at a place like Uber, you had to have become known not only for having a high bar, but for being able to assess people really well. I'm curious of like the things maybe you started to look for or behaviors or patterns or things that you kind of were the signals you were assessing that made you able to assess people at such a high level. Yeah. So first of all, to clarify, I was not the head bar raiser for all of Uber. Uh, it was just for Uber ATG with a focus on okay, okay. engineering. But yeah, it was still a fun role to have and an honor. An honor still meaningful. Yeah. To help raise the bar for ATG and hire great people into the self-driving division. So first is there are, I guess, competing approaches for how to do bar raiser um, throughout Uber in different departments and different areas. Um, there were different approaches. So one of them is the bar raiser actually does one of the interviews with the candidate. Another approach that Uber has done in certain areas, as well as other companies, is turning it into more of a debrief moderation program, where you run the debrief and you try to raise the bar through that debrief, but you don't actually meet the candidate because meeting the candidate could introduce some sort of unconscious bias on a number of factors or just bias about literally what you saw versus sort of helping sift the signal out of the noise and hearing from others. Right. I do believe it's important to meet the candidate. I think having interviewed thousands of candidates during my career, I do have a, a pretty decent sense at sort of getting a sense for the candidate and what's working and what's not working. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? I have a lot of questions that I've asked a lot of candidates. And that gives me a lens on how I can interpret what other interviewers are saying and can help me come up with questions to help direct the mm -hmm. conversation. So there is some bias, but I view that bias as sort of coming from experience and pattern matching that is valuable that comes from that experience. So when I started off as a bar raiser, I believe that every bar raiser interview for an engineer should have a technical component and a non-technical component. By the end, I wasn't as sold on needing a technical component in the bar raiser interview. And if I had time at the end, I would focus on it. But I did not think it was the most important or most critical thing because we have Interesting. three plus other technical interviews for the candidate. And I felt like I was getting a lot of signal out of the non-technical questions. Right. So the non-technical questions I asked in the bar raiser interview come down to a couple different categories. By the way, I guess this is would be different for every bar raiser in a different company or different team. Sure. I think there's some overlap in what a bar raiser could ask, what a hiring manager could ask, what a product manager could ask. But the types of things that I cared about were getting things done. So say like deadlines, you're working on a project and it's going to be late. What do you do? How do you react to that? Do you make up excuses? Do you just work super hard to get it done and kind of hear your way through it? Or do you communicate with your manager and with your team and try to get creative in solving things? Do you move the deadline? Do you try to get other people to help? There's a bunch of different things that you can do. And I want to understand the types of situations people have been through and how they dealt with it and then kind of push them on different things. So if there's four or five things you could do and they mentioned two or three of them, I might go deeper on one of them and then ask about something else they haven't done and see if they're sort of open to new suggestions or if they're pretty close-minded about it. Mm. Another getting things done type question could be estimates. You're working on a new project. How long does it take? And how do you come up with an estimate? And some people just mm. talk about gut estimates. Other people talk about, sure, you do look at your experience, but it's really about breaking down the project into components, estimating each component, maybe validating those estimates with others, making time for integration, making time for testing, making time for planning upfront. If there's some big unknown, trying to figure out that unknown upfront and then revising the estimate if you have to. Right. There's a lot of directions that question can go that can speak to somebody's experience and can help with the leveling of a candidate right. and really help us understand, are they a junior engineer? Are they a senior engineer? Are they a staff engineer? What type of things have they seen? I think interpersonal stuff matters. So talking about when they get into the inevitable conflict at work, 
does it get really nasty and people are yelling at each other and people get fired over it and there's pointing fingers and I'm right and you're wrong. No, you're right. I'm wrong. Like that's kind of like the bad way to approach it. I want people to have no ego and really care about getting to the right answer and thinking about different solutions and thinking about pros and cons and trade-offs, being willing to admit they're wrong. But actually, if they think they're right and say the more senior person is wrong, being willing to stand up for that and fight for what is right. And that's, you know, not a required competency for everyone that we interview, but if you have it, that's, and you can give a good example about it. I think that's a really good sign that you're pretty senior and have seen things. I also like to ask about then growth mindset and the people themselves. So What's your superpower? What are you really good at? What do you uniquely mm. bring to the teams that you're on? What do the people see in you? Why do they pick you for the team? And I tell them my philosophy that I think we want to pick people for superpowers, not just pick people who check up all the boxes. Right. And then on the flip side, are you aware of your growth areas? And it's not like you tell me these so we can disqualify you. I want to understand if you're self-aware. And then I'll kind of do like a mini one-on-one, like say they were hired and I was their manager and mm. we had this feedback about them. How do they take the feedback? What are things they've tried before to work on it? Have they tried things before? Have those things worked? Right. If they haven't worked, why not? We also talk about giving feedback to others. I think that's super important. So these are a yeah. bunch of different dimensions to evaluate an engineer on sort of non-technical dimensions. Yeah. And sort of like the better, more thorough, more nuanced your answer is in each area, the more senior you are, the more things you've seen. Or if you're young and you have great answers, this could be one reason that you're a rock star engineer. It's not just, oh, I'm the fastest coder, right. but maybe you're going to be the best teammate and right. you know, can integrate into something bigger than yourself. Yeah, people definitely underestimate the superpower of being a great teammate. I, and I hear a lot, a few things in there. I hear like screening for conscientiousness, for initiative, for thoughtfulness, for conflict resolution skills, all of these things that are like, again, kind of the dimensions of the person, not necessarily of like technical or hard skill set. And you mentioned too, like you've interviewed thousands of people, you've been through multiple interview processes, structuring them from seed stage to high growth stage to kind of the in-betweens. And you reach this point where you realize that there's not any one right way to construct an interview process or to construct a pipeline. You mentioned to me that you see hiring now as a complex system and kind of approach it with with an engineering mindset. Can you talk me a little bit more through that? kind of a destination that you've landed or that conclusion that you've, you've landed at. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned sort of one, there's not one right way. I would say I used to be a black and white thinker and now I'm black and white on very few things. Maybe just mm-hmm. one thing. And that's that black and white thinking is probably not the way to approach things. <laughs> right. So if anyone tells you this is like the one right way to hire people, including what I'm about to say, I don't think there's, there's always one right way. Yeah. I'm going to describe a framework and I hope the framework works for you and for you know other folks that want to hire. This is what's worked for me. So First, I mean, I think the reason we're doing this podcast is we agree that uh, you know people are a company's uh, greatest asset and that it's harder than ever to hire these days, both because big tech are paying amazing salaries to folks that we haven't really seen before. Salaries have grown a bunch. And also there's more startups than ever getting bigger valuations than ever when they're raising. So it's, it's really hard to hire. And I think when facing a problem like this, I think we actually want to solve it with an engineering mindset. So just like when you're building a new feature or a new system at work with code, you, you pick your language, you pick your architecture. You pick what systems you want to build on, whether it's EC2 or Google Cloud or whatever. I think you can apply that same engineering mindset to the complex system of hiring. I think hiring is a machine that can be designed, architected, built, improved upon. There's going to be bugs. There's going to be Hmm. escalations and and outages that you need to go fix. So the engineering mindset at summarized in a couple points. First is there's a problem we want to solve, whether it's a feature to build or a bug to fix. And it's important to understand what problem are we solving? What are the goals? What metrics are we moving? What does success look like? And then you want to think through potential solutions. Step two, what are these solutions? Brainstorm with people, write up some summaries. Then you want to pick, here's where we're going to go. So step three is the what we picked and how we're going to do it. 
So what's the chosen solution? What are the pros and cons, the trade-offs against other solutions? And then there's building it at step four, which involves a migration plan. You don't just switch from, say, having your system in Python to having your system in Go. You might rebuild different pieces at different times. Or even if you do rebuild the entire thing, you don't just do like one cutover. There might be that runs in shadow mode or something like that up front. So how does that apply to hiring? Well, a problem you might want to solve is I need to hire 20 engineers in a quarter or three engineers by Easy. the end of the month, right? <laughs> like these, these, this is an example problem. Or yeah. I need to hire a super specialized role, like an expert in machine learning or an operations research or a VP that's done something in the space before. Or a problem could be, how do I raise the bar? I don't think the engineers I've hired are as good as the early crowd. How do I fix that? So th- identify your problem. And then there's brainstorming the solutions, how to approach this. So say it's about hiring. Well, do you want to solve that with internal sourcing, things like referral jams and sourcing parties? Or do you want to hire someone internally? Do you want to hire an external sourcer, uh, which could be a firm like Build? It could be using tools like TripleByte, could be using a tool like Dover, which sends emails out on your behalf. Then you want to sort of pick your solution. So comparing and contrasting, what's the benefit of this versus the other? Could be uh, cost, could be time, could just be familiarity. Uh You pick one, and then you have your implementation plan. So how do we use it? How do we train people on this? Have we written up a playbook for how to use it? What meetings do we need to create to review the progress of this stuff? Should we do a check-in to keep iterating on this to see if it's still working? So all that stuff from how we build engineering systems, I think, applies to hiring as well. And let's talk about sort of the, the vastness and complexity of the hiring machine. Yes. I think a lot of people don't have enough respect for this. <laughs> so uh, hiring, you can think of as having, I don't know, maybe five components. There's sort of sourcing or top of funnel. There's the interview process. There's uh, the debrief and the decision. There's closing the candidate. And then there's onboarding the candidate. And within each one of these areas, there's three to five more things. For instance, with within sourcing, there's hiring sourcers or using external sourcers. There's referral parties. There is even writing down what the qualifications are for what you source for. Within the interview process, what questions are you asking? How do you know which questions are working and which aren't? How do you know when to retire questions and do new ones? How do you train new interviewers on the questions? How do you look for unconscious bias? How do you do load balancing for number of interviews per week across the interviewers? Hmm. Within the debrief, is your decision, is it synchronous or async? Like, are you meeting or is it right. written up? What is the format for how you write up your feedback? Right. Is the decision up to the group? Is it up to the bar raiser? Is it up to the eng manager? And if the decision say is up to the group, does the eng manager have a veto? Is there a bar raiser? What does that program look like? Within closing, is that done by the recruiter? Is it done by the manager? Do you have everyone on the team send them an email? What are the comp bands? Do you go out of band? Do you send a love bomb? Do you invite the candidate out for dinner? The love bomb. There's so many different facets. Yeah, you know, sending swag in the in the mail or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I love that term. <laughs> the love bomb. I like that. Maybe that's somewhere we can focus too, because being at Facebook, and granted, you weren't at Facebook maybe when it's at its all-time high, but I imagine you had a bit of a brand at that point. Uber, Uber ATG, I'm sure you had a, a little bit of a brand. But when you're hiring for your seed stage company or you're hiring for a CSU where you have great investors, but maybe you're not necessarily like the hottest thing out there. How do you think about the close? One of the things we tell our clients is, you know, we can help you take off in the plane. We can help you fly the plane, but they have to land the plane. Ultimately, people aren't going to fall for the recruiter. They're going to fall for the team, the mission, the manager. How have you dealt with that across kind of these various experiences you've had? Yeah. So I think the close actually starts from very first contact with the candidate. It, a candidate's not necessarily going to join for one thing. And it's, I guess, what's the analogy I like to use? I guess there's like death from a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. If someone says no, they might not even know why. It might be death from a thousand cuts. And they might say, oh, it comes down to money or passion. Right. But I think it's really an amalgamation of things. And if they join, I think it's the joy from a thousand blessings. You know, that would be like the, the opposite of death from a thousand cuts. I love that. Yeah. 
So from the very first conversation, what got them interested? And how did the reach at work? If it was over email, what in the email caught their eye? So if you're uh, not a name brand company, maybe you can highlight some name brand things you have. For instance, at uh, Sisu, mm. our founder and CEO came from Stanford and the company's based off of his research. We have funding from Andreessen Horowitz and NEA, two of the top uh, VCs out there. And Ben Horowitz, whose name is on Andreessen Horowitz, is sat on our board. So just talking about that would actually get people's interest. Like, oh, there's like, even if I don't understand the blurb, there's something here right. to, that you know, I, I want to learn about. And then when they get on the phone with the recruiter or with the hiring manager or both, whatever order you decide to do in, really understanding what's motivating their job search and what's motivating why they want to be at CSU. Are they sort of an active or a passive candidate? Are they running from something or running to something? Right. And really understanding that about them can help you tailor the interview process to an extent and interview the cell. One of our recruiters is actually the lead recruiter at CSU now, Brandon, a good friend and, and fantastic recruiter. He also got to work with them at, at Uber. He maintains text conversations with candidates, like literally texting the candidate throughout the process. It's informal and casual, and he really becomes their friend throughout the process. That's calls at all hours. And there was even one candidate that joined, and she was like, you know, one thing that I just really loved about Brandon is, you know, he'll take a call at night, and I call him, and he's like, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, I'm just like sitting by the fire outside, you know, looking at the stars. It's a really nice day. <laughs> that, that's mine. How's your night going? You know, let, let's talk about the opportunity. But, you know, just yeah. really feeling like more of a, of a friend than someone with an angle. Yeah. It's both. We do want to hire the person. We want to be your friend, too. And, you know, really helping the candidate see that what they're looking for, which they already told us, right. they can get at the company. And maybe preparing them up with interviewers who went to their school or worked at their past company or have an expertise in a specific language or technology that they're excited about, that can get them excited. So once we decide we want to make the hire, part, a big part of the close is compensation. Mm -hmm. My philosophy there is I don't want to just pay top dollar to get the best people. Like, I think we can and should pay top dollar when we can, right. but you don't want to hire mercenaries that are only there for the money. Agreed. You want people who really want to be there. And there are people out there where they're pretty upfront. They will take the offer that pays the most money. And honestly, I'm not super interested in those candidates. It's, yeah. I think you, you know, you can close them if you pay for it, but are they really going to be the people that are the lifeblood of your culture of yeah. the company? Do they really yeah. have passion for what you're doing? I and mean, people do the best work of their life when they really want to be there. Yeah. So yes, we, we get paid and we get paid well, but I don't think that's the, the main thing. So really, really try to say, what would it take to get to yes? Like I want to understand what the money thing is, but really say it's, we don't want money to be the issue there. Let's make sure this is the right decision. We'll make the money stuff work out. Yeah. No, I, I love what you said, too, about the death by a thousand cuts and the joy by a thousand blessings, because, yeah, they'll give you an answer of why they said no. But it, it's usually, yeah, it's an amalgamation of all the little instances, all the little interactions over time. Yeah, and some of those are things like, say, too many people are late for interviews or someone right. doesn't show up right? versus like, say, we send an email in advance telling you exactly who you're going to meet with. Another thing that could hurt is rescheduling interviews too many times. The thing that could help is making them feeling comfortable rescheduling if something came up. Right, right. Um, giving them time to ask questions at the end could be a great thing. If really it's sort of open in response to their questions. And if they say, hey, what's the worst thing about working here? If you answer that honestly, that's actually a good thing. That builds trust where yeah. sometimes interviews go all the way up till the end and there's no time for any questions at all. So you know, these are some examples of things that can pull people in or push people away. Yeah. And we've talked to founders about that too, of like, you want to assess, you want to make sure that you're getting the best person, but you can't just assess, 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 assess. You got to be selling, you got to be trying to climb into their motivations and how they're looking at the world, at your company, at the various opportunities. Like, yeah, you have to kind of make it a human process, even though it's an engineered system, you got to make it a human centric engineered system for sure. Totally. And there was something in there too about you want missionaries, essentially not mercenaries. I'm thinking about 
when you're in now as a VP of engineering at CISO, you're in this remote world. How did that change or alter the hiring or how did that change or alter the system? Yeah, I think probably one of the most salient changes is interviews tended to all happen on one day consecutively. Candidates would take off half a day or a day from work and come in and meet the team and there's lunch. Whereas over Zoom, more and more candidates really wanted to split it up over multiple days. They don't have to take a day off from work and people won't know that they're interviewing because <laughs> they're not gone right. from work that day. Right. So interviews yeah, are often not happening back to back. It's be spread over not just a day or two, but sometimes a, a week or two, depending on availability on each side, mm. which could actually slow down the process, which is not a great thing. So there's a trade-off of sort of like flexibility and sort of the speed of the process. Right. So yeah, I guess the negative of that is you might also lose some momentum. You also don't get a chance for the candidate to really feel like they get to know the team by having lunch with the team. I think having lunch with the team is a, a really important thing. And even just in the interview, just I feel like you get to know somebody more when you're actually sitting at the table with them and you can get up on a whiteboard or look over someone's shoulder on a laptop versus just stare at the same angle on Zoom. So I think it's been harder to communicate passion and to be contagious with passion in the candidate over Zoom, which is tough. And I've been trying to figure out ways to get that out of people. Yeah, because there's no real substitute. There's like additional things you can do, but there's no real substitute to being in the same room. I think the other thing that's interesting here is around culture and like hiring, like bar raiser hiring, it seems like it is more about these human dimensions versus the hard skills. How does culture slot into that? How important is the cultural element? If you find someone who's super competent, they want the job, but is really takes your culture in a direction that, that you're, is uh, adverse to maybe the direction you were going. How do you think about assessing that out? How do you think about making those kind of decisions? Yeah, I think culture is an important thing to assess for. Ideally, everyone is assessing for that a bit, at least sort of passively. Not everyone might have a question about it, but I think it's important to assess. Every company has different culture. So to say someone's a culture fit, it could be great for one company. It could be not great for another company. I think what's important, though, is in addition to the biases that we form about the candidate, that we have some questions that are geared around it. So we don't say something like, oh, they don't seem like a culture fit. Right. Like, what does that mean? Like, which aspect of our culture do you not think is a fit and why? Did someone ask a question about that? If there is a flag or two from different interviewers, can we do a follow-up and actually assess the culture? So you don't want to only hire people that look like you or act like you in the ways that don't matter. Right. The parts of culture is that as a company, hopefully everybody defines actually what does matter and that you really get specific about what that means. Yeah, I agree. We subscribe to the idea of culture add too. It's like, you don't always want fit, fit, fit. You want people to add and be, you want an emergent culture as it were, but not an accidental one, I guess. <laughs> The other thing too is that's interesting is like you've had to hire at multiple levels. Like you've hired managers, you've had directors. What is, does there something that changes or how do you think about assessing somebody's level? Like how can you tell kind of where someone is in their leadership journey or their ability as a leader? And maybe too, like how do you think about the ceiling piece of it? Cause you mentioned the growth mindset. Maybe you're catching someone on an upswing where they're not at that next level yet, but you see it in them. How does that kind of work in your mind? Totally. So I think here is an easy, but lazy, and I think not great way to do it is basically asking how many people have you managed or led the technology for and for how long? Mm. So basically trying to make it quantitative, like, oh, you know, you're this level, if you manage 10 people, that level of it's 50 people, that level of it's, you know, 120 people. Mm. There's a a correlation there, but I don't think it's the most important thing. Some of people have managed large teams and I don't think they could even do a small one here and vice versa because it really comes right, down to how right. same thing for you know years of experience that you managed for one year five years 15 years same thing there are some people that have managed for 15 years and they're still not at the director or VP level 
and other people that have gotten there much faster, like, you know, right. five years or maybe even less. Right. So that might be a way to come up with sort of like a quick estimate of where you think they are to sort of figure out what types of people should they meet in the interview process. Sure. But that doesn't mean that's necessarily the level that they're going to be at. So to figure out what level I think they're at for each one of these questions, I like to write down for each level, what type of answer would I expect to get? And sort of how much more depth, how much more nuance, how many more different types of situations, how do they reply to pushback? And you can kind of sort of slot them in based on the answers that you're getting. And I think that does tend to map to the complexity of projects that you've worked on. Mm. So how many months did this project work on? What types of issues came up? How did you deal with it? Other types of things that I think correlate with leveling are things like growth mindset and low ego and being willing to receive feedback and give feedback and uh, having a unique perspective on things versus just talking about, oh, well, this is the way we've always done it. Or this is you know right. what I've seen and it worked for them. So I'm going to do that here. Mm. I really want to hear what's something that you do that maybe you don't think is working. If you could snap your fingers and change it, that you would. Right. And I think um, you know those ideas come from seniority and having unique perspectives on things. I could see that. And I wonder too now, like because ultimately, I think learning to assess people is generally it is like it overlaps into every realm of your life, like learning how to assess people on one dimension. It's not like just for engineering hiring or product hiring. You're like learning how to assess people in general. Mm -hmm. How much of this stuff do you take over now as an investor assessing founders to invest in? Like, is it kind of similar calculus in your brain? Are you looking for similar patterns or? Yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah. Really awesome question. Cause I totally see a connection there with as a VC investing in companies you don't really get to interview the founder the same way. Like, hey, let's like sit down and go through all these structured questions. Right. And if you do, they're really about the business. I might sneak in a question or two about them. But if you're interviewing the founder, they're not going to want you as a VC. They don't want to feel judged. They want to feel supported. They want to feel right. coached. They want your help getting to the next level. At the same time, you do have to assess them as a founder. So I think the my experience interviewing thousands of folks and hiring hundreds of folks and managing hundreds of folks over the years, I think has helped me develop a pretty good sense of small things that I pick up on, mm. things I can ask in different ways they can respond, picking up on their words, picking up on their tone, just talking through how they want to solve something or maybe pushing back on a piece of their product direction, their architecture, just in a way like, oh, what about this instead of that? How do they reply? Are they open to other ideas or do they really just want to do things their way? Right. I think that sense has helped. A lot of the people that have worked for me have gone on to be great founders. And uh, a lot of people that I've invested in uh, also gone on to build great companies and assessing them using some of this sort of talent filter that I've developed at work, I think is, I think has played into that. Yeah. But yeah, I think this lens of hiring for a company to VC, I think it also just applies to like, this might sound kind of cliche, but like being a better person, Yeah. like having lower ego and trying to resolve things in an amicable way and knowing when to pick your battles and empowering people with autonomy versus micromanagement. You know, like how many times have you had a friend complain about some drama in their life and you want to go solve it versus like just listen or something like that. Right, yeah. You're trying to solve it's almost like a, a type of micromanagement, right? And yeah, yeah. A lot of people start off their management career doing that. But yeah, I think a lot of the stuff in hiring and management just it uh yeah helps you make better investments, makes you a better friend in person. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you have a receptive audience here for that. I totally agree that like, you know, all of us are little recruiters hiring for our own lives, <laughs> hiring the the team we want to travel through life with <laughs> for sure. We're coming uh, closely in here. I want to know, looking back now over this journey, what would you tell a younger Brent, the, both the founder as a founder and as an engineering leader, things you know now that you, you wish you knew then, or if you could impart some of, the, some of this insight, some of this wisdom backward 
What, what would you say? What are those points? Wow, there's so many things I would tell a younger friend. I know, I'm sure it's just like all of it just hits you at once kind of thing. Yeah, I would say probably the very top thing is finding a good mentor or two, as well as some peer mentors. And so instead of just me telling you one thing, a younger Brent, go find the older Brent. And <laughs> yeah. don't just read like five bullet points on Twitter or something like that, but yeah. develop a, a relationship, learn from them. I've made a ton of mistakes over the years that I try to help the people that I manage and the people that I invest in learn from so I don't have to make the same mistakes. And even if they do, I'll help them through it because I've, I've been there and, and done that. As a younger Brent, I don't think I had too many mentors. I don't think I understood the value of, of mentors or mm. relationships. I was a very different person back then. I was a black and white thinker. I was stubborn. I was introverted. Didn't understand kind of like the EQ side of engineering and, and being on a team. So I would say that's the next thing is, so A, find a mentor, but B, understand that working at a company is different than what you do in school studying computer science. It's not just writing the code and it's not just writing code that's going to be thrown away after the assignment. You're writing something that needs to be built to last. And that is going to take more than heroics the night before something is due. It's going to take weeks or months for your project. It's going to take working on a team. And it's going to take not just learning how to write better code, but learning how to be a better teammate and a better report for your manager and a better manager for the people under you. And so really investing in learning about the non-technical aspects of engineering, I think is such a huge unlock. Absolutely. And you want technical mentorship too, but I think there's a lot of that out there. I think this is really another dimension to to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. I always say we work in a people business, you know, it's not machines writing code, not yet anyway. (laughs) So (laughs) it's like, it's every, every, at every step you're dealing with people. So it's like, you got to learn people. Yeah. Well, have you seen the GitHub Copilot? It uses some OpenAI technology to actually write your code for you. <laughs> <laughs> but even then, the engineers, even when the job changes, you're not maybe writing every single line of code. Right. You're just working kind of like a layer of abstraction up, right? So yeah, yeah. we don't write assembly language anymore. We use programming languages and the languages have gotten more expressive over time. That's kind of how I view that. But anyway. Yeah, the language changes, yeah. but the people don't go away, right? Yeah. So it's someone to tell Copilot what to do. And that's, those are going to be the engineers. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we wrap up, is there anything that we should be looking forward to in, your, in watching you? What's next up for Brand Goldman? What should we, any shout outs or things you want to kind of get on people's radar about what you're up to? Yeah. So I've been angel investing for about 10 years. I've done about 100 investments, including a bunch of unicorns and some really great companies out there. So I've been very lucky and and fortunate in my journey there. I've always wanted to be a full-time VC. So I've been an engineer and an engineering leader for about 12, 13 years. And I've decided now's the time to take a plunge to go be a VC. So I quit my job as head of engineering for a really promising startup last month. And we'll be raising for a new early stage venture firm, investing in pre-seed seed and some series A. I'm really excited about it. The deal flow is already looking great. And I have a bit of a different approach where I want a lot of the LPs not to just be family offices and endowments and pension funds and other VC funds, but really being builders. So engineers, designers, data scientists, technical recruiters, sales, people who really help build the company. I want to be the people that put the money into the fund. They can then get the great returns that uh, venture has provided to the investors and also help the companies be even more successful. So I'm pretty excited about it. I'm going to be announcing something in the next couple months. And yeah, if you're uh, interested, find me on Twitter. I am Gold, and I would love to have you involved. Nice. Yeah, we are excited for you. Sounds like we might have uh, plenty more opportunities to work together in the future. Well, thank you again for coming on, Brent, and for sharing all your wisdom and the story of this journey with us. Yeah, wishing you the best till next time. Nigel, thanks for having me on. And Brian, thanks for having me in and for the opportunity. Really enjoyed it. 
best of luck to build talent. And as my portfolio companies are trying to hire, we'll definitely refer them your way. <laughs> we love it. We love it. All right, Brent. Cheers. Thanks. Have a good one. The Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io and make sure to search for The Gradients in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, Thanks for listening.